I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Our guest on this episode is singer-songwriter, actor, and band leader Lyle Lovett. Lyle began his career playing acoustic sets at bars off of campus while studying for his bachelor degrees in German and journalism at Texas A&M University. His career has been typically associated with country music, and he's won four Grammys, including awards for Best Male Country Vocal Performance and Best Country Album. But he's also incorporated gospel, blues, jazz, and swing into his body of work and acted in television and film, most notably in four movies for the late director Robert Altman. At the time of our recording this conversation, Lyle is currently on tour with his large band, and I'm so happy to speak to him today from Oregon. Lyle, thanks so much for joining me. Nick, it's great to, great to hear you. Great to see you. Yeah, we've been trying to uh, work on this for a while. So when you uh, hit me up the other day and said, I can do it Saturday, I cleared the decks. I'm so happy to, to see you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the, the on-tour schedule... Uh... It is is crazy, but because of the routine of it, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I often have more of a sense of routine out here on the road uh, than I do at home. I want to talk about being on the road in, in a little while, but before we jump into that, as I was researching for our conversation today, I came across a quote from you from where you said that your career really began when you ran into a band in Luxembourg. I know we're going back a little bit in time here, 40 years, 1983. What were you doing in Luxembourg? You know, I, I had I had gone over uh, be, because of taking German in school. I had, I uh, signed up for a couple of German study study in Germany German programs uh, in 1978 and 79. And uh, in 19 and and the, the you know the the most uh, well the, the the cheapest flights to Europe in those days were were uh, Air Luxembourg. So that's the way all of us from school went over. And and uh, so we flew into Luxembourg and then back home out of Luxembourg. And uh, on my trip out in 1978, uh, spending a couple of days in Luxembourg before flying home, um, I went into a went into a little bar and there was there was a you know a, a Luxembourgish cowboy sing, singing Johnny Cash songs and and his own songs. And I talked to him on the break. He was a he's you know born and raised in Luxembourg, a fan of country music, and his name his given name was Claude is Claude uh, Weber Claude Weber. Uh, he called himself his stage name was Buffalo Wayne. I said now how did you how did you come up with that name? He said that he he just thought of his two favorite American cowboy heroes Buffalo Bill and John Wayne. I said well it makes perfect sense. And so we stay we stayed in touch. And he was working on the 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 big city citywide fair in 1983 in Luxembourg called the Schuberfuhr, and he invited me to come over and play at a at a at an American music tent. And on this American at this American music tent uh, was a, a a band that that billed itself as a Las Vegas show band. They were from Orlando, and they called themselves Body and Soul, and they played. They played the top forty hits of the day, and uh, in nineteen eighty-three, and and uh, then there was a country band from Phoenix uh, called J. David Sloan and the Rogues, who were uh, the house band at you know just the most happening country nightclub in Phoenix, a place called Mister Lucky's. I was playing the set changes, and nobody in attendance cared about what I was doing. And the the guys and and J. David Sloan and the Rogues felt sorry for me and and uh, I, I'm pretty sure and they they said hey why don't you instead of playing the set change what what if we learned some of your songs and you came up during during our set and and did you know did your deal then and I was delighted and those those people the 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 musicians in that band were of course J. David Sloan the the leader and lead singer. Billy Williams, the music director, who went on to produce all of my albums until he retired, and an 18-year-old Matt Rawlings, uh, who I, uh, you know, a, pia a piano player that I'd never heard the likes of before, uh, a 21-year-old Matt McKenzie who played bass, a 23-year-old Ray Herndon who played guitar, uh, Jeff Bory was uh, was the drummer. Those musicians were the first band uh, I ever recorded with. I 
at the, at the end of this month in Luxembourg, they said, well, if you ever want to record anything, come on out to Phoenix and we'll, and we'd be happy to work with you. So I did just that. And in the spring of 1984, uh, made some demos with them, which were the demos I went, took with me on my first trips to Nashville a few weeks later. And, and, uh, it was Billy Williams and Matt Rawlings and Ray Herndon and Matt McKenzie and Jeff Burry and J. David Sloan, who, you know, took my songs from being folk songs that, that I made up on the edge of my bed in my bedroom to being songs that sounded like they might be able to be on the radio. And, and, and I've still, you know, I still work with, with those musicians and, uh, you know, they're still a big part of my life. That trip to Luxembourg in 1978 as a student, you know, turned out to be a kind of a, a pivotal point in my life. Before that, I mean, I mentioned in the intro that you were playing out um, bars around around college and uh, playing uh, solo acoustic and, and, and more sort of folk material. Did you have a desire at that time when you first started out to put a band together? Did you think you would have a band? You know, I, in, the, in the beginning, I was just trying to you know, trying to, to learn songs and play, you know, present songs by, by my favorite songwriters to people, you know, place. I, I, I always had an inclination to want to play something for people in the audience. I mean, and by in the audience, I mean, you know, people at the pizza joint having, <laughs> having pizza or people mm -hmm. at the hamburger place having hamburger, you know, play, people in the audience to, to play a song they might not have heard before. And and I played songs and and tried to tried to pick you know obscure deep deep cuts from Texas singer songwriters like Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark and Willis Allen Ramsey and and uh, Stephen Fromholtz uh, and and Jerry Jeff Walker and B W Stevenson and Michael Murphy Michael Martin Murphy I you know I didn't didn't necessarily play their most famous songs but I tried to pick songs that that uh, I thought might pe hit people's ears for the first time. Uh, I, I, I was always uh, drawn to that idea. And then as I started to make up my own songs then and work them into my, my sets, I, you know, then I was, I was sure that people hadn't heard those. And, and uh, you just hope that they might want to hear them again. But that was, that was how I started. And, and it wasn't until and I started playing out in 1976 and uh, it wasn't until 1978 that I had enough of my own songs together to start playing original music clubs, places in Houston that are, you know, still, are still important original music, uh, is a, is a, is a, still is a, an important original music uh, place, uh, uh, Anderson Fair Retail Restaurant, where I was, I was introduced to the owners, the bookers of Anderson Fair by uh, Nancy Griffith, uh, who I'd met from opening for her. Uh, and Eric Taylor and Don Sanders, people that I, as a journalism student at Texas A&M, people who I met by interviewing them, people I met and got to know because I talked to them like yeah. the same way you and I are talking right now. Yeah. You know, when, when you were doing uh, journalism at, at German at school, what did you think your career path would be back then? You know, I was, I was so, by, by the time I was 17, I, 16, 17, I was so interested, uh, I was, uh, I was so interested in playing and singing. I mean, that's really all I can think about. And, and, uh, I changed my major a couple of times in school, just try, fi and I finally, finally thought to myself, gosh, what, I'm, uh, you know, I finally figured out, I was thinking about it all wrong. Instead of trying to, trying to, instead of trying to figure out what I wanted to do in school, I started thinking, what? what the heck can I do in school to, to finish school? I, you know, my parents went to night school. Uh, getting an education was important enough to them that they, they went to night school and they worked. It took them eight years to finish their undergraduate degrees because they could only go, you know, to school part-time. Right. I was a little boy. I remember going to their, both of their graduations, and I remember what a big deal it was, how exciting it was. I, the idea of not going to college never occurred to me. But once I found myself there, I, I thought, I thought, gosh, all, all I really want to do is play music. But I knew that I, I, I felt because of my parents, finishing school was important. So I, 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 I thought to myself, what can I do? And I always got good marks on my 
essays and papers in uh, my classes. So I went to check out the journalism department, and I found there an atmosphere that reminded me of, you know, hanging out with people who were interested in playing music. I I, I walked into the newsroom. We had a daily paper uh, at Texas A&M called The Battalion. In those days, published every day. Now it's all online, but but it was you know every day we had to get the paper out. And but it, it, that newsroom was full of students who were just you know as obsessed with writing and getting the paper out as I felt I was about trying to learn a new song. You know, trying to trying to write a new song. And and so it was a very uh, sympathetic point of view to mm -hmm. the way I looked at what I was doing with my music and, and was inspiring in that way. I mean, and, and many, many of my classmates went on to become, you know, lifelong professional journalists and, and, uh, and I still stay in touch with them. You know, that's that camaraderie that you develop at three in the morning in the newsroom, trying to, trying to, you know, trying to go back and write the perfect lead, uh, you know, or write the perfect headline for someone else's story. You know, it's very similar to the camaraderie that you feel out on the road with your band when you're sitting, when you're riding down the road on the, on the bus after a gig. It's, there's something about, you know, that kind of dedication, those kind of long hours and going into the wee hours of the morning that uh, binds you together. And, and so that, that's, I got into the journalism department the last couple of years of my university and felt all that and it, and it, and it appealed to me. And I, and I got to, my regular beat was the city council and Brian, Texas, which was pretty dry stuff going to those city council meetings. But for, for fun, we, we would all sort of flip coins or, or to, to see who would get to do entertainment stories. And I often got to write about some of my favorite performers coming to town, musicians and songwriters. So is it fair to say that you really wanted to get a degree? It was really important for you to go to college, finish college, get that degree and journalism was really the vehicle to sort of get college done well that's yeah that that is that is fair to say i you know i i never interviewed for a job i mean i i always thought to myself there has to be a there's got to be a way to figure out this music deal you know there's there there has to be a way because that's that's really all i wanted to do so so you you weren't thinking i'm going to go write for a newspaper or a magazine you're thinking let me get this done and then i'll get back to my music well, that's that. That really is it. And and uh, but I received a lot of encouragement and, and gained a lot of confidence from my professors uh, and from my classmates. I, you know, it, working in the newspaper, it was it's, it's a lot like playing in a band because I I learned as much from my student editors and you know classmates. Uh, we we would all help each other. You know, we'd all look at a sentence and say, well, how you know how could you how could you say that better? How could you say that more simply? And we would help each other. And uh, that part of the that atmosphere it wasn't a it wasn't a competitive atmosphere. It was a supportive, helpful atmosphere. And and as I was able to make progress with my music and was able to start playing with other people, uh, I mean the you know the idea of being a a folk singer. I I, I mean I I. I think about it. I, I think uh, oftentimes people who play by themselves, play an acoustic instrument by themselves, are referred to as folk singers. But really, what a lot of us uh, are uh, are just people who couldn't afford a band at the time. At the time, so you get called a folk singer. But but uh, you know, as as I got to play with those, you know, that wonderful band from Phoenix, uh, as I got to know what that was like uh, on stage. You know, it was very similar. Uh, it was that supportive atmosphere. What can, what can I do to help is really the place that great musicians start from. We talked about coming back to the States uh, um, and, and working with those guys, with those first demos, and then you got your first uh, record label deal and your self-titled first album came out in, in 1986, did well. They, they asked you to do another one. And then... that, well, that's a, that's the measure of success, isn't it? I mean, I, I you know, early on, early on, you know, the, in in uh, in in promotion, I, you know, I was I was often asked, well, what what uh, would it mean to you to be successful? And I, I just always you know said the same thing, so just to be able to keep doing what I love to do, and right. that that's it. I mean, just just being invited back 
is the greatest success you can have. Yeah. And and then the third album was the first one with the large band. Tell us tell us how that, that came about. Because you're out with the large band now and you actually sort of go back and forth, don't you, between solo and then some some duo stuff. I know you're out with Chris Isaac. You play with John Hyatt a lot, but you always come back to your band. Well, the, in the summer, the summertime when we play bigger outdoor venues, and and you know, I mean, there by industry standards would be moderate to small outdoor venues, but but for me, they're they're big big outdoor venues, places like Red Rocks in Colorado and Wolf Trap, Washington D.C., Shadow San Michel in the in the Seattle area. Uh, those those kinds of dates, if I can string enough of those. Uh, loosely together across the summer, I, I can support the large band. We're thirty-six people in the band and crew, mm. uh, so it's it's you know so we work five and six nights a week just to make <laughs> make sure everybody can get paid. You know, so the summertime is is when I'm able to do the large band. Other times, other parts of the year, I scale back and uh, you know play you know uh, have have a, a configuration that's appropriate to smaller indoor theaters. I love working with with other people, but it does always come back to the large band for me because with the large band, I can present my songs in you know exactly how I imagine them. It, it was Billy Williams when we were doing demos in 1984 with the with the band from Phoenix, uh, a little little a little studio in Scottsdale, Arizona. I I played one of my blues songs and. Billy Williams asked me, he said, what? He said, would you, would you, could you, could you imagine hearing any horns on this? And I, it, the idea had never occurred to me. And I said, well, sure, let, let's try it. And so Billy wrote a horn chart. The, so, the song was a song of mine called I Know You Know. And Billy wrote a horn chart and there was, a, there was an alto player in town and we got him to play all, all the parts, an alto player named Steve Marsh. And Steve Marsh played all the parts, and I had never heard anything like a horn horn part on one of my songs, and and I just I just loved it. So that really was the beginning of the large band. When we were going on tour in 1988, Bruce Hinton and Tony Brown from MCA in Nashville had arranged a, a, a ten thousand dollar sponsorship for which was made the difference between being able to go and not go uh from the the pioneer serial people pioneer electronics and and uh and i remember standing at sir in nashville after uh, an evening of rehearsal with tony brown we were starting to load the truck load gear on the buses the guys were, were we were going to drive overnight to washington dc to play our very first gig at the birchmere on that tour in 1988 and Tony Brown asked me, he said, what's the name of the band? I said, well, I don't, I, there's not a name of the band. We're just going to bill it as mine. It's just, it's just going to be me. He said, well, no, Pioneer wants the band to have a name. And I thought, I looked around the room and I saw all these people milling around. And I thought about how, because of these horn arrangements, you know, the the term big band had been leveled you know at, in, in, at me in in some write-ups and i thought well we're not you know we're not this is not big this is not big band i mean it's definitely not big band these are you know songs with some horn charts and so i looked around and i said tell them it's a large band and he told me said really like that and and uh which cinched it for me and so i said yeah tell them it's the large band say it's says lyle love it and his large band and it was just off the top of my head and so that's how the name came to be. And, and so we started calling the band that from that moment on. But what the large band is for me is having every, any instrument at my disposal to be able to play a song, you know, any, any way, you know, that, that occurs to me. I mean, we can, we can play, we can play the songs the way they're arranged when we record them and we don't have to, but uh, we've got, I've got everybody on stage to be able to do that in the large band. And that is great fun for me. It's such a great twist as well, isn't it? Because big band would be expected, large band, not so much. I mean, I still get, you know, yeah, I'll have promoters, uh, you know, which, you know, it's natural that people don't, get, you know, make mistakes. 
I mean, oftentimes my last name is still spelled with an E on the end, but, but the, the, uh, but we're, we're, you know, often billed as, uh, and his big, big band and, and, uh, but to the, to the point and gosh, to my 2005, five, 2005 album, you know, we uh, titled, uh, it's not big, it's large and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, still anyway, it's, you know, all that branding stuff. Uh, but the point for me is being on stage with a four piece horn section with a full rhythm section and with the musicians that I get to play with is so much fun. It's just so much fun. Uh, it's such a privilege to stand on stage with Russ Kunkel on drums and Leland Sklar on bass and, uh, you know, to, to have the, the arranger and leader of the Muscle Shoals horns, Charles Rose on trombone, to be, be able to whip up a horn chart. If, if, if I, one afternoon sound check, just say, hey, Charles, can you write a chart for us? And he'll, he'll sort of, you know, think, look thoughtfully and say, well, it might take me until tomorrow, he'll say. And th there we, then there we go. You know, we'll have a brand new horn chart. It's, it's just exhilarating, really. And, and you, you've sort of bounced around as well on albums between using the band and, and then uh, not using the band. And, and I couldn't help but notice that it's been a little while in between records until the, the current album that's, that's out there right now. Did you take a break to, deliberately? Or did you have other stuff going on? Well, no, you know, I, I, did, I did take a break. My 2012 album was the last album in my original record deal. And, and, uh, so much had changed in the, you know, the world of the record business from 1985, when I signed my deal until 2012, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stop for a second and, and try to figure out ideally what I might do next. And, and, uh, so that, that was, that was part of the reason for the break. It wouldn't have been as long had it not been for, uh, for the pandemic. Uh, we recorded tracks in November of 2019. It still would have, it still was quite a while. Mm -hmm. uh, recorded tracks in November of 2019 with the idea of finishing. We had studio time booked to finish everything in March of 2020. And of course, that didn't happen. But it was, yeah, it was, it was partly my trying to figure out uh, what I wanted to do next. How you know how I might make a record, who I might make make the record with. Uh, ultimately, I I signed with Verve because of the the people there I'd gotten to know and because they were. Universal Company, my my deal through Curb Records uh, uh, over the years with MCA Records was Universal, the Universal Music Group. So I was very comfortable there, and so ultimately I kind of felt like I was kind of going going home and uh, working with them. But it was a one record deal, and then now that's you know that record came out a year ago, and and now my deal with Verve is over. So once again, I'm a free agent trying to figure out you know how you know who who to do my next record with how and how to do it. You also got married and had a family uh, in, in between those times as, as well. And I believe you have twins, right? You know, I do uh, six, six year old twins. And I was 59 years old when they were born. And, and, uh, you know, I just had no idea. I had no <laughs> idea. I, I have, I have 20 year old twins and I was 47 when they were born and I had no you, idea. And I, and I still and have I, no idea. Well, you you well that that that's reassuring because I can imagine that to be the case. Uh, you and I are the same age, I think. I think we and, are, yeah. And and uh, so yeah, so that's that's. I mean, how did you feel at forty seven? Ha having you said forty seven, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how how did I mean that's, you know, I, I at fifty nine, you know, I, uh, you know, I I felt felt really like. Gosh, I've done everything in my life that I've ever wanted to do. I don't, you know, all I want to do right now is just be here with these two. And at forty-seven, you must have had some some of that quality as as well, huh? Yeah, I I don't think I'd done everything I wanted to do at forty-seven, and 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 I still still haven't. But what I did know at that age was that I felt that I wanted to have that experience of, of, of being a, a parent. And it's, it's been challenging for a whole bunch of reasons, but it's by far the best thing I ever did from the point of view of who I am as a, as a person. It's really made me look at the world in a very different way. And as, as an older parent, and I don't know if you have this as well, 
uh, I feel my job now is to stick around as long as I can for these people. Well, that, that's, you know, that's, that's, I, I think about that all the time, you know, and yeah. I, th I think about, oh, gosh, how much time will I have with my two and, and, uh, I just want them, you know, and I, I, I'm home more than I'm gone. I mean, we play, we still play. Playing live is how I make a living and how, frankly, it's how most recording artists make a living. It's not selling records, it's, it's going out and playing. So I still, I need my job. I'm grateful. I love my job and, and I play about a hundred dates a year. I'm home more than I'm gone. And when I'm home, I'm really, really home. I can spend every minute with, with them. I can take them to school. I can pick them up from school. I can do, you know, everything with them. I love that. You know, I just, I, if I'm not with them, I mean, you know, I, I still have my mom. My, my mother's 93 years old. I talk to her every day. I, you know, we live next door to her on the farm in the Houston area. Uh, I get to see her. I'm so grateful for, the, for that. I, I know, you know, I know my children, I won't be around when my children are 65 and, and, and but for whatever, whatever age they are, when I'm gone, I just want them to, I, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to be with them enough now that they'll know when I'm gone, that they'll at least at the very least, they'll be able to reflect back and they'll, they'll just know that I love them. That's all I, that's all this time is about for me is to really just to instill that in my children, just to let them know how much I love them. I mentioned in the, in, in the intro that you are an actor as, as well. I mean, you did some really great stuff with, with Robert Altman. And I know that you still act, you still do TV performances. Uh, once in a while you get on a show and you play a character. Is it still important for you to, to have that part of your artistic oeuvre? You know, it, it, it was, that's a, a, a really nice way to, to say that, you know, I, I, it was acting at all really was, was for me, was just because of Robert Altman. Altman came to, I, I, I didn't aspire to be an actor. I still, I don't pursue acting in the way real actors do. And I, you know, I don't think of myself as an actor. I think of myself as somebody who, who gets to sort of peek in the windows of, of that world, uh, occasionally. Uh, Altman came to a show. Uh, I did a tour in the summer of 1990 with Ricky Lee Jones. It was a co-bill we played, which meant we split the time, but we I, we played first. We opened for Ricky and and uh, did an hour, hour and 15 minutes every set. And and uh, we played the Greek in Los Angeles that summer. And and Bob and Catherine Altman uh, were invited to the show by by their granddaughter, Signe Corriere. And, and who went on to a career in film working for with Jonathan Demi and but Signe just you know was a gosh maybe still in her teens took her grandparents to that show and after the show Robert Altman called me and and uh, I, you know he I, I I was standing in my kitchen and the phone rang and he said hi it's Bob Altman you want to be in a movie just like that and <laughs> and I was a fan of Altman's I you know my my I, my parents back back in the uh, in the R-rated days, uh, I, I went to a small Lutheran school. School and in seventh grade, uh, my, I was in seventh grade when Mash came out, and my parents took me took me to see to see Mash. I was the only student in the whole school that got to see Mash, and so it made me really cool for a little while. Everybody wanted to know what was that what was the shower scene really like, and so I was I was you know popular for a minute. And, and, uh, so I, I was a fan of Altman's and when he called and when I, you know, got a chance to work with him and just gain some insight into his process, he, he was just like a great professor. You know, Robert Altman was so, such a great judge of character and so self-assured and so confident in his approach that he was an open book. I mean, you could... You know, some I, I you know I've been on sets where you wouldn't dare walk over to the to the director's video setup and peek over his shoulder and watch how a scene is being shot. You know, if you're not in it, and if 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 Altman saw you sort of creeping up to take a peek, he would he would say, "Here, here, come on, come on," and he put his arm around you and say, "Here, can you see? Yeah, take a look." And he just would share anything. Had dailies with Robert Altman were a 
end of day party for the cast and crew. Everybody, he insisted really that everybody working on the film come to dailies. Anybody, everybody that could come to dailies, they'd have pizza and snacks. And he wanted to see, he would sit in the back of the room and he would watch everyone watch every take of every shot. I mean, that opening shot in the player, that eight minute opening shot, that brilliant eight minute opening shot, there were you know, I don't know, 10 or 12 takes. I, it was fascinating to see all of those actors at Buck Henry, the way he delivered his line just a little bit differently every time, the way he, it was like going to film school. And, you know, as a fan of movies, to be able to gain that kind of insight into somebody's process and to see how, how a film like that came together, it was just, it was a wonderful summer. That was summer of 1991. Yeah, and, and you jumped and, in and, and right into uh, a, a classic, which is just amazing to start with something like that. The player, as you mentioned. Well, Alt, you know, and Altman was famous for uh, for giving his his actors a lot of leeway to play with their lines, to play with their to play with their you know interpretation of their character. Uh, what I noticed about Altman, he, he and he did do that, but he didn't do that with everyone. He knew who to do that with, and he knew. And in my case. Altman knew that I was looking to him for, like, I had, I had never acted. And, and so I looked to him for direction. And he would come up discreetly as we, you know, rehearse a scene uh, and get the blocking together. He'd come up discreetly and w just you know, whisper something in my ear and say, here, try, try do this. And, you know, whatever he, whatever he suggested, I would do. And whatever, you know, whatever I did seemed to, seemed to work. And he, he was, he was just an astute judge of character and his, his films were, Altman's entire message was really, uh, about stripping away pretense, you know, was just about saying to the world, Hey, it's okay to be yourself. Just be, be who you are, be who you are, be okay with who you are, be who you are. And in, in every one of his films, he, he just strips away layer after layer of pretense until he gets down to the core character. But that, uh, as I watch Altman's films as a whole, he was a no-nonsense, down-to-earth, straight shooter from Kansas City, Missouri. And, you know, he had a, a great way of showing how different other people could be from him. Being who you are is really great advice for, for life, isn't it? Let alone, you know, trying to uh, figure out how to play, play a role, bringing who you are to everything you do, being your pure self. Well, ultimately, you know, it's, it's what you're, you know, what you should be best at, you know, ultimately it's kind of all you, all you can be because uh, and, and, you know, God forbid that, you know, as they always say, God forbid you, you pretend to be somebody, uh, who's, who's, uh, cooler than you are and, and people like you for that, but mm -hmm. then, you know, don't, don't like you for who you are. Uh, you know, I've never been cursed with having a massive radio hit <laughs> and, 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 uh, you know, because of that, I've never been asked to, to, to duplicate something and. You know, there's there's a wonderful creative freedom in that. You know, people people don't think of me as just one thing. I I have always been, thanks to the people I worked with in the business, uh, and thanks to you know, maybe part, may partly just being stubborn, but I've always been allowed to to, to be myself. You know, uh, if you pretend to be somebody you're not, and the audience likes you for that, I mean that that would you know have to be a terrible feeling. Let's jump into these music questions. It's a, it's a bit of a pop quiz. I, I ask the same questions to, to all of our guests. So you can imagine from my perspective, this is a lot of fun. I hope it is for you as well. What is your first musical memory? Uh, first musical memory, earliest musical memory, really watching Nat King Cole on television when I was a boy and, and singing in church. I mean, we always went to church, singing, mm. singing church, you know, listening to my parents saying, always trying to, you know, trying to sing the right notes in church. But, but yeah, w watching Nat Kinkle, there was a, in, in, um, in Houston, there was a daily sort of 
you know, American bandstand type show called the Larry Kane show where they're young, you know, nicely dressed, uh, teenagers would dance to the hits of the day. And Larry Kane was the, the host, you know, the DJ. And, and, uh, that was that I tried to watch that every day as well. They played all the pop songs. What is the first music you bought with your own money? Uh, with my own money, I'm thinking it was, it was a monkey's album. A monkey's album. My, my parents had bought, had bought me, <laughs> my parents had bought me, uh, Beatles singles. I, my parents uh, bought me a, a 45 record player, uh, gosh, when I was just little, little and, and would bring home singles for me. And, and, uh, the, the, the first song I ever performed, uh, was, uh, uh, Murray Callum's version of long, tall Texan in second grade. And I sang, uh, background with, uh, my buddy Rodney Fisher, who sang, I want to hold your hand. Mm. So, so, uh, that was second grade. So, so, I mean, you and I, I mean, we, we grew up, we must've grown up listening to a lot of the same music. And of course you were, I mean, you were still in England when you were five and six years old. I, I, I was, but I had a similar thing in so much as my, my dad was actually a, a journalist and he would bring home the, uh, the seven inch 45 promo singles that they got at, at the office. So that was the first thing I heard, which was the Beatles. And that's really why we're talking today. Well, you didn't have a chance, did you? Your dad bringing just mainlining that kind of music right, right to you. That's that's you know that's that's wonderful. You know, and just gosh, think about how I mean how important. I mean, the time when we, our growing up for that to be pop music on the radio, but to think of the impact of their music, the Beatles' music, on the world since then, and mm. how their music. Their their music will be regarded, you know, in uh, historically as important as any music that's ever been written, any classical music, any piece of music ever. There, I mean, they they set the standard, really. I think, and and for us to have just you know been able to turn on the radio and hear it, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Did you watch the uh, the Peter Jackson Get Back series a couple of I, years ago? Did not. I want to watch it, but I, I didn't. No. When, when you get a chance, check it out because it, yeah. it, it's it's fascinating. Because I remember seeing Let It Be, um, you know, when it came out when I was like I don't know thirteen or fifteen or, or something like that, and uh, being so disappointed that I was watching a movie about my favorite band breaking up, and then yeah. when Peter Jackson got a hold of everything that had been shot, yeah. and just really spent the time going through it, what he basically did was he went through the shoot day by day. So oh. as they sort of work their way through, you see each day of the progress of them making this album. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, I, I you know, I, 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 and I did see some clips from it, but yeah, the, oh, there was, it was, yes. I mean, you saw the affection, right? The, the, in the clips that I, I saw, you saw the affection among them all. And joy. It, it was, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Process and collaboration and the, you know, the creative, you know we're we've we've worked up uh, a new song on this tour and and being able to work it up on stage in the in the way you would in the studio but just to have everybody right there and say oh let's let's do this today and charles hey see write a chart for this and you said you do about 100 shows a year yourself what about concerts from other people live music when you were a kid what was the first concert you went to without uh, adult supervision oh my parents were counselors for the uh, you know the 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 adults for a, a ch what our church group in the Lutheran church is called the Walther League teenage group and and uh, I used to tag along when I was 5 and 6 years old to to the outings they would have uh we went to a Bobby Braddock concert in the Sam Houston Coliseum uh you know it would have been in 1962 or 63 and uh, I, but I, but I remember this spec. I mean, down in the boondocks was his big song. I remember the spectacle of that. You know, it was he. It was in the round. He was he was in the center of this arena, and you know, all the people all around. It was you know an electric kind of atmosphere. Uh, I remember that. The the uh, I didn't uh, go to concerts on my own until I was you know like a senior in high school, but. 
um, back at the Sam Houston Coliseum again. I I was a, a fan of the Charlie Daniels band, so I went and saw the Charlie Daniels band open for the Guess Who. I really went for Charlie Daniels. I enjoyed the the Guess Who, but uh, and and I I went to my one of my high school buddies was a big Alice Cooper fan, uh, and and so he invited me to go with him to see Alice Cooper at the Sam Houston Coliseum. Susie Quattro opened, mm. and uh, of course I I became an Alice Cooper fan, and, and I enjoyed Susie Quattro as well. Uh, she was that was that was a rock and roll. Susie Quattro said said bad words and you know fired up the crowd, and I thought yeah yeah. And she was all dressed in leather. I mean, she was cool. Rock and roll. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she uh, was, yeah. What do you listen to when you're feeling sad? Oh, my goodness. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm lucky that I, I don't often feel sad. And, you know, I listen to my children speak. But that's all I need to to make me not feel sad. Listening to Listening to thoughtful songs when you feel sad is is therapeutic i mean i you know classic american songwriters classic songwriters of the world you know like paul simon and john prine they you know have a way of like bob dylan like bruce springsteen uh, like my texas songwriter heroes listening to towns van zandt uh and his thoughtful downward leaning lyrics uh, sometimes uh you know can can give you you know give you that sense of empathy if you're if you're feeling you know if you're feeling bad you know just knowing that gosh someone someone else is sort of working through a similar feeling i you know i that's that's also very helpful Th at this point in my life all i need to do is sit on the floor with my children and i feel better immediately i love that answer if you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, this will focus you in. What would you pick? Oh, that's really good. Uh, how how about what I say, Ray Ray Charles? What I say? Like it. Do you have a favorite music video, and and if so, why? Oh goodness, you know, th th thinking back, how revolutionary was it when MTV came on the air for the first time? Those VJs, those. I mean, how many times did you hear the police see watch the police's Roxanne video? I mean, it was on. It was like every other every other video was Roxanne. Right, Roxanne. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our audience? Oh goodness! Uh, you know, I was befriended by people I looked up to. Uh, in in such a real way. I mean, if if it weren't for Guy Clark, if it hadn't been for Guy Clark, I might not have gotten my record deal. Guy Clark got before I ever even met him. Uh, got a hold of my demo tape and started playing it for people around Nashville. And one of the people he played it for was Tony Brown, who was the head of A and R at MCA Records in in those days in the in the mid eighties. And and when when Curb Records, when Dick Whitehouse from Curb Records. Uh, presented me then to to MCA. Tony Brown had already heard, had heard my music, had already was already familiar. You know, had Guy Clark's stamp of credibility. I know that was a that was a very real that was a very real thing, very real help to me. I've always felt like the still the 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 you know the the junior person in the room. But you know, at sixty five, to 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 watch some brilliant young songwriters and performers come up is that's that it's very exciting. I mean, I, I've gotten to work in the, in the last year with I mean, one, one of the, uh, a young, young singer songwriter, uh, that's play playing part of the summer with the band, uh, Warren hood writes wonderful songs. He's the son of my friend champ hood, who was in uncle Walt's band. Uh, Warren's I met Warren when he was seven. He's 40 now. Mm. Uh, I, I, I've gotten to do shows in this last year with Hayes Carl, who I've long, long admired, but, but really gotten to know better in this last couple of years. Uh, gotten to work with, gosh, with Sierra Hull, brilliant player. I mean, wonderful songs too, but the mu musicianship, you know, just beyond the universe. I mean, just brilliant. Uh, the milk carton kids to see, to see what they, you know, to see sort of a, 
modern Smothers Brothers uh, on stage with, uh, you know, their own, you know, twenty the twenty twenty three version of that uh, in a whole new way and with brilliant songs. Uh, I really enjoy them as well. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. They're so so. You know, gosh, they're so. You know, all you have to do is, you know, stick your head out the window and listen. I mean, there there's so many brilliant young talented people and there's so many so many i mean there's there's so the 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 trick these days is is being able to listen i mean there's so much content there are so many people out performing it it seems like seems like there are more than ever and and uh i you know i i always i wonder how to i mean i at 65 and after all these years in the business you know i'm still trying to figure out how it all works and the best way to do it. And, and I think to myself, gosh, I wonder how, I wonder how some of these young folks, you know, what would it be like to be, to just be starting out at this point? I mean, it's, uh, you know, that people are able to go out and do what they love to do and to play music and to bring their art to the world. Uh, Just the fact that they're able to do it at all, I think is a real accomplishment. I'm with you on that. I I agree. I, I feel like the technology shift obviously in the last couple of decades has changed things enormously and from an artist's point of view uh, giving them the power <clears throat> to record and distribute their own music is huge but because there are so many people how do you cut through you know one of the biggest questions that i am asked as somebody who you know plays music on the radio or you know exposes music through television or whatever is, you know, how, how do I get heard? And that's what most artists say to me. I just want to be heard. And that seems to be the most difficult thing uh, at, at this moment in the, in the music business. You know, and I, and, I, and I can imagine even in the world of podcasts, huh? I mean, you come from, a, I mean, your, your legacy in radio, I mean, you're a, very, you're a very well-known radio presenter. You've had a great career. That has to give you a, a, a leg up in terms of, visibility with your podcast i mean that it's there's just a lot of content i mean you're on the radio every day there's yeah. there's a lot there's a lot of content everywhere there there's still i mean that the fact that you're still on the radio you're live on the radio i mean there's still nothing more powerful i think than that live experience and, and for for us playing music i still think there's there's you know as convenient as being able to stream a song whenever it pops into your head, be able to just listen to it right then wherever you are on whatever kind of device you might have in your pocket. Uh, as as wonderful as that convenience is, there's nothing more powerful than in-person, you know, in-person being able to listen. There's nothing more powerful than, you know, even, uh, you know, an in-person conversation. I mean, uh, being able to sit uh, as wonderful as the te- and versatile as our technology is, there's nothing more power- powerful than sitting in a room with somebody and being able to look him or her in the eyes and be human. I mean, there's something genuinely powerful about that. I mean, it's the way God made us. It's the way the universe works. There's something special about physical contact. And as wonderful as technology is, I I think, you know, that humanity can never be upstaged by technology. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words about my career. I think it's a miracle I still get to do it, but. <laughs> well, that, that, and that's how I feel, isn't it? You know, and I'm grateful for that. Gratitude, miracle, yeah, you know? yeah. That comes, that comes with age, I think. Um, you know what I what I was was just thinking is that there's nothing more powerful than watching thirty people on stage hitting it. I mean, going and seeing a big band or a large band, that is the most powerful thing to me in music. Watching that many people on stage, all in sync, working towards the same goal of of making a piece of music swing. That's the most powerful thing in music for me. Right, and, and I we, we I agree. I mean, we. We we did we we were doing two shows this summer with symphony orchestras. We played at Red Rocks with the Colorado Symphony, and we'll play at Wolf Trap in August with the National Symphony. And that is an awesome. I mean, the 
my large band, I mean, there are 15 of us on stage, including me. And, but to, to, to feel the power of a 60 piece orchestra uh, behind us, I mean, there's nothing like it. Yeah. Uplifting. It's uplifting. But yeah, that, that everyone is pulling in the same direction, that everyone is doing his part to elevate everyone else's part, to hear the um, improvisation in the parts of an arrangement that allow for improvisation and to hear the musical conversations bounce from one side of the stage to the next. That's something that keeps music, songs that I've played for years, that keeps them alive every performance. It keeps them alive every show, uh, knowing that that the, the performers I'm on stage with aren't simply reproducing something. They are living it right then and responding to it right then. That's exciting for me every night. Is there a band or an artist that you personally love, but you feel perhaps they never quite got the recognition or the big break they deserved? Oh, gosh. Wow. So, so many folks. You know, there's so many talented folks that, that you know, I mean, people that, uh, and still, you know, and, and who, who make their livings playing. I mean, there, there is a wonderful, and you may have come across them, in your time, but there's there's a wonderful singer guitar player, and who, who lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, named Bill Hearn. Bill Bill Hearn uh, met his wife Bonnie at the uh, school for the the state school for the blind in Austin, Texas, years ago. They for years were a duo, Bill and Bonnie Hearn. They played college coffee house circuit. They played folk clubs. They played really you know, kind of the, the, the listening room circuit, uh, all over Texas and, and wherever they could, I, I'd had them out on the road with me. They're wonderful folks. Bill's well in his seventies now. Bonnie's passed on. Uh, Bill still plays solo. He's a great flat picker and has a commanding voice. And, and, uh, these, he can see, he can see a little bit. I mean, he's legally blind, but he can see light and dark and can navigate himself wears these Coke bottle thick glasses and is just the most charming gentleman you'd ever want to see. Uh, I did a live stream with him during the, the pandemic, but if you've never heard of Bill Hearn, you should, you should check him out. A, a wonderful guitar player, Delta blues guitar player, songwriter, played all the classic uh, acoustic blues songs like Big Bill Brunsey type songs. Is, is a, a man named John Gramado, who was part of the Anderson Fair scene in Houston in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, he moved around that time to Rockport, Texas with his family and, and uh, makes a living painting, painting houses. But he's a brilliant, brilliant singer and player. And, and uh, you know, you, 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 you just think for different circumstances, he could be you know, everyone could know him. Uh, there, but the, there's so many of those kinds of stories, and I, you know, and I admire so much the artists who play, no matter what their level of success might be. That once again, that the success that they feel is from being able to do what they love to do. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? <laughs> My my son, my son at six years old discovers video games on his iPad that have pop songs attached to mm -hmm. different games, and he he's been making his own playlist. He he <laughs> he figured this out himself when he was he was just barely five. Uh, he would say, "Dad, Shazam this song," and so I would Apple Music. He'd have me play it from my phone. And he would record it on his vo voice notes so that he could play it whenever he... And, the, and my favorite part of those kind of recordings, since they're just uh, in through the air, is the conversations we we have, you know, in the back in, in the yeah. background. But uh, he, he's been listening to uh, a lot of late, Lady Gaga lately. And, and I've gained a new appreciation for Lady Gaga. I mean, I think she's brilliant, but, but I've listened to her more closely uh, in the last year than I ever had. And it's because of him. And I, I, I mean, not only appreciate 
what she does, her, her writing, her musicality, her sense of presentation, her th sense of theater. But I think of her as, you know, she's a friend of my boy and, and she's important mm. to me because, because of that. Yeah. And so I've, I have, I have a, you know, I've, I have a, you know, a natural attachment to Lady Gaga at this point. We've got one question left, and before I ask it, I'm, I'm going to thank you for um, hanging out with me for a little bit of time. It's a Saturday lunchtime uh, in the middle of July as we're talking. You're in, in Portland. I'm in uh, the San Fernando Valley, where it's probably going to be about 100 degrees. Probably now, if I go outside of the house, I might just stay in. But you have a show tonight, and I just want to thank you for, for taking a minute to, to actually do this. I, I've been wanting to talk to you for 25 years, I think. That's the last time we spoke when I first came to Los Angeles. You came on my old show, and uh, I'll never forget it. You you were such a pleasure to to hang with and speak to, and uh, and and you still still are after all these years. Thank you. So the last question is, how are you feeling right now? You know, I I feel good. I I I'm excited about tonight's show. You know, I we uh, all of us in the band talk about the show the night before and every day we make adjustments you know every day we think well what can we do a little bit differently or what can we do better than last night we we try to try, we try to be in the moment and react to whatever the you know whatever the 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 situation of the day is what the venue's like what the audience might be like that's a that's a maybe the single most fun I have in uh, fun part of of uh, playing and singing is really being able to be in the moment and to to be able to adjust to the audience to 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 see what the audience feels like because every every audience you know is is different. I mean, every audience is uh, good in its own way, but you know might want something different. And being able to sense that or guess what that might be, you know, based on how the audience feels. Uh, is is really the fun of the fun of performing? You know, sometimes you guess right, sometimes you guess wrong. You know, you you try try to play to the to the crowd and fit the room or fit the venue, whatever it is, and all of that. I mean, there's I I guess when I say I feel good, I enjoy trying to figure that out every day. It's always a a, a bit of a puzzle. It's always there's always a bit of the unknown. And there's always some excitement associated with that. How can I rise to the occasion every day? There's always something to think about. And in the case of these musicians that I'm getting to work with, Jim Cox on piano, Lee Sklar on bass, Russ Kunkel on drums, Stuart Duncan on fiddle, uh, Brad Lely, the professor of saxophone at the University of North Texas on alto, Charles Rose on trombone, Jeff White, a veteran of bluegrass and country music, on guitar and mandolin, James Hera on electric guitar. I know whatever I can think of, those musicians are going to make that idea better as they bring it to life. And I, that excites me every day, and it makes me look forward to every every performance. And it makes me look forward to the you know my the next day off when I get to fly home and and see my little ones. You know, I since they were born in 2017, I've missed only seven days off getting to fly home and i'm gonna to have to miss the next one because we're going from seattle uh up to british columbia and uh it's just it's too far to go on a single day off mm. and make it make it back in time but all of that for me is exciting and i'm grateful for the people that i get to work with i'm grateful for the people who support us and i'm uh you know grateful to the to the good Lord uh, for giving me my family. And I just appreciate your speaking with me, Nick, and, and uh, you know, helping me get the word out uh, after all these years, because all I want to do is uh, be able to keep doing what I love. This tour with the large band uh, started on the 16th of June and will go until the 24th of August. We're doing 57 shows in 70 days and uh if if you're curious to find out where we're playing just go to lylelibbit.com and click on the tour dates tab and uh it'll come come see us having a chance to catch up with you after all these years has just been such a fun way to spend an hour so um lyle love it thank you so much well thank you nick thank you nick. let's let's uh 
Let's talk again before 25 years. Huh? Yeah, I think we should. But let's talk then, too. Yeah, okay. It's great talking to you, mate. Thank you, Nick. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>